All right, good evening, church. So glad to be here tonight to see all your faces, to worship our God and King with you all. Uh, man, I cannot believe it is the third Sunday of Advent. You know, even less can I believe that next Sunday is Christmas Eve. Do you believe that? Dang. It has just flown by. So, uh, I mean, I think it's the, the whole year. Has anyone else had a whole year that has just flown by like this? Just, yeah, it's, it's wild. They say time speeds up as you get older. I guess I'm older. Like, it just, it just feels that way. No, people are going to object to that. Sorry. Okay. Uh, so, all that said, um, third Sunday of Advent. So, we are... Um, uh, We're doing our special Advent series. This is the third week and final week that we're going to be doing this because, like Josh said, we're doing something a little bit special next week on Christmas Eve. If you've been around, you know that we've been in the book of Genesis, especially focusing in on Genesis chapter 3. And we're looking especially tonight at verses 14 and 15, just two verses. They're two very significant verses. Uh, Just picking up right where Pastor Josh left us off last week. So that said, why don't we go ahead and stand together, and we will hear God's word from the scriptures. Uh, I will add, just before I do the actual reading, one quick note about context. If you have missed a few, or it's been a while since you've been in Genesis, uh, as we come into this verse in this moment, what's happening here is that in light of Eve having just told the Lord that the serpent deceived her, and that is why she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord now is turning his attention, his gaze, to the serpent, and he's beginning to address the serpent here. So that's what we're coming into as we read these verses. Here now God's word, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's word. Remain standing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, you are good. As we have already sung and proclaimed and heard your scriptures read, prayed together. Lord, thank you for ministering to us by your word. And we pray that that would continue in these next few moments around this text. For your namesake, for your glory, the building up of your people and the church, and your mission in the world, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, you may be seated. Okay. So, church, uh, there's an old saying that you may or may not be familiar with. It was actually coined by a 20th century uh, Spanish-American educator, philosopher, writer, a guy by the name of George Santayana. Anyone know George Santayana? Is that name ring a bell? Yeah, I got a picture of him here. No, I see no one. No, so, no. This is, this is George Santayana. He's a good-looking guy, right? Um, and uh, this isn't the quote that I'm about to share from, from George, but... Um, he, you probably do know at least something that he has thought about and shared and is kind of famous for, and that he's actually the guy who first spoke the saying, you'd be able to finish this probably, that those who do not know history are destined to repeat it. Yeah, that, first and foremost, came out from George Santayana. So 
that's the guy. He wrote lots of things, essays, various uh, reflections, even some poems. At one point in his writings, a collection of essays that he put together, Santayana made this claim. He said, quote, Only the dead have seen the end of war. Only the dead have seen the end of war. Now, to me, surrounding this quote and this quote itself, uh, I find it just kind of interesting, historically speaking, to kind of wrap our minds a little bit around the context, because this particular uh, reflection, this quote from Santayana, was actually first published in 1922, four years after the conclusion of World War I, you know, the, the Great War. And so what people have noticed as they have read Santayana's work and kind of put it in its, its historical context, in its moment, uh, is that this statement is actually a very clear reaction to and uh, a kind of pushback against of the words of one of our American presidents, actually. It's kind of reacting to, pushing back against the speech of a president, in this case, uh, the 28th president of the United States, who is President Woodrow Wilson. He was alive, living in this same area. They're contemporaries of one another at the same moment. And Wilson, uh, for his part, at two different points, uh, once in 1914 and then again 1917, as Wilson, Wilson himself is the president who uh, brings America into World War I, has this reflection. And he says this, which again is probably something you've heard before, even as a little bit of justification for why America is stepping into the war, he says this. He says that this war, World War I, this great huge conflict, this is going to be the war to end all war. That's, you know, it's going to be hard, it's going to be ugly, but we can do this. It's going to be the war to end all war. It'll be done after this, right? He, he even used the phrase that we've heard, uh, probably familiar with, you know, this is going to make the world safe for democracy, right? Forever now, after this war, after we, we do this push. The war to end all wars. So you can kind of see this and begin to lay it out as a timeline, right? 1917, Wilson makes this claim as America enters the war, declares war on Germany. Five years later, the war is over now. 1922, Santayana is reflecting back on the state of the world, the state of things that have progressed, and he's thinking to himself, and he goes, you know what? No. Incorrect. Right? We are not done with war. It's not over. War is going to continue. War, conflict, is going to continue to be with us. In fact, going back to where we started, only the dead, Santayana says, has seen the end of war. Now, again, kind of continue to pull the story forward just a little bit. As history would have it, it seems like uh, the events of world uh, happenings kind of back Santayana up way more than they back up uh, President Woodrow Wilson, unfortunately, right? We know that within just a few short years, once again, World War I leads what? To World War II, right? So we're back in it again very quickly. Sadly, tragically. It would have been great if Wilson had been right, but it seems like that uh, very clearly. Santayana's reflection is more right, more on point than Wilson's kind of optimistic hope. We see that that is carrying on even today to our moments. 
right? We haven't seen the end of war. Even as we are in this moment, 2023, as, as this year wraps up, we've seen war. We've seen conflict in the world. Ukraine, Israel, these challenging things, these tragedies. Kind of a similar way, and I would argue kind of a connected way, as we come to Genesis chapter 3 this evening, we find that war is actually exactly what we should expect in this life. If we are those who read the Bible, understand the scriptures, and take them for what they are, believe them, embrace them. We should anticipate war to be part of the reality of our lives and of the world. Perhaps not always, thankfully, not always constantly geopolitical war, national war, you know, militaristic back and forth. There are moments where that's not the case, right? Praise God. But certainly as, you know, for us, right, for you and me, spiritual beings made in God's image, those uh, who are, you know, use some of the language uh, we see in C.S. Lewis sometimes, those who are sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, spiritual conflict, supernatural, cosmic war is part of the fabric of reality that we live in. It's part of the big story that we are a part of. It's a huge part of the why. It's a huge part of if we're going to understand the world and what's happening and why it's happening, we have to understand this reality of spiritual conflict, spiritual war, even if we can't always perceive it, right? even if it's kind of behind the veil in some cases. Made me think not to take us too far afield on this point, but jump ahead for just a moment to the New Testament. You think of the words of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 6, very famous passage, verse 12, where Paul's reflecting, he's writing to this church, and he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Right? So there's more going on than what, we, than what meets the eye, right? More going on than what we can see beyond our perception. In verses 14 and 15, flipping back to Genesis, as we just read together, we see that the Lord himself is addressing the serpent, this deceiver, this liar, basically making it known to this creature that among other things, and on top of being uh, one who is now going to basically eat dust all the days of his life, there is now going to be spiritual war in the, in the world that God created as a general rule, as a general expectation for, for how the life is going to be. This is part of the divine consequence that we see unfolding here in this pivotal, crucial, paradigm-shifting moment for the world in Genesis 3. Because of what the serpent has done for his part in what we call the fall, for his role in tempting Eve, his role in deceiving Eve away from obeying God and his word, we see now that judgment is falling. The curse is being enacted in this moment. Spiritual war is now a reality in all the earth because of what has just happened. Verse 15, we find, I think, a helpful key word that we can kind of key into, lock onto, that kind of ties all this together, and it's this word enmity. 
enmity. It's not one I typically use in my, my daily parlance. Of course, neither is my daily parlance, but <laughs> enmity, right? Enmity, we see this in verse 15, right at, the, right at the start. This is the Lord God speaking to the serpent, this curse, right? He says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Uh, as I was doing some study, some research to try and put a little bit of flesh more on this word uh, and to understand it a little bit more clearly, came ac- across one resource that defined enmity in at least two different ways. Uh, first, as, uh, first way is enmity is the intense hostility among nations in the midst of warfare. The intense hostility among nations in the midst of war. So it's, you know, going back to where we started, right? World War I, World War II, enmity. It's one way we could talk about that experience for the world and for us. Secondly, though, he goes on, another way we could understand enmity, put some flesh on those bones, is enmity is a life and death struggle between two or more combatants. Two people going at it. To me, this brought to, to mind images of, you know, the gladiators in the arena, in the Colosseum in Rome, going at it. Right? The, you know, two or more combatants, like life and death, in this moment, in the arena. That's enmity. As, as maybe a, a little bit less serious uh, connection points and a little bit more cultural, it makes me think of the Hunger Games, right? If you read those books or watch the movies, right? The, you, you know, life and death struggle in the arena. That's kind of what you see in the Hunger Games as well. May the odds be ever in your favor. Most of the time they're not, though, right? Most people don't get out of that alive. This is enmity. It's, it's combat. It's hostility. It's battle. It's unyielding conflict. Basically, it's war, right? It is war. I, I don't even know if this is worth mentioning, but I've, I said it this morning, and uh, I'll say it again, but thinking about this is war, right? I, one of the other places my mind went this week is, you know, the classic cartoon character, Bugs Bunny, you know where I'm going with this? Any, anyone? No? Okay, so Bugs Bunny, like, right? Like, you know, a lot of times he'd get into trouble, he'd get into a little back and forth, right? Uh, you know, he'd get whacked, he'd get smacked, he'd get blown up. It, what, something would happen to him. He'd bounce back, he's resilient, he'd come back, and, he's, and he, what would he say? He would say, of course you know this means war, right? Is, is that familiar to anyone? Okay, yeah, okay, good. Probably was not worth it, was it? Yeah. Okay. But that's another thing. Same thing here, right? Connection to the scriptures. This is war. It is on now because of what has happened in Eden. Enmity is on. And to bring it back to Santayana, the enmity is on, the battle is on, and only the dead will see the end of it. All that said, framing, framing us up for the next few moments feels heavy. We still awake, we alive, we're breathing. Next few moments, I'd like us to see and consider at least two things about the spiritual war that we are in the midst of, that we see in light of Genesis 3. First, I want us to think about, consider the scope, or we might see the extent of this spiritual war. And then secondly, I want to think about the end results of this war. And if you're still with me, we'll just keep on trucking. You awake? Okay. Okay, so uh, first things first here, as we think about the scope 
of the war here that we're seeing beginning in Genesis 3 and carrying on from there in God's word to life today, the word that comes to mind first to kind of describe the scope here is the word total. The war here is total war, or I think also of the phrase all-encompassing. The war is, is one that affects everything and everyone. Basically, this is a fight that is not going to be a simple one-and-done type situation. It's not going to be quick and easy, easy in, easy out, involving just you know, one little interaction. It's going to be complex. It's going to be widespread. Look again at the text with me, verse 15. We see the Lord saying to the serpent in the course of this curse, we see two things, really, that we can pull out. First, he says, as we've already established, He says, I will put enmity, this hostility, this struggle between you, serpent, between you and the woman. But not, it doesn't end there, right? I'll put enmity enmity between you two, but then also, also between your offspring, Eve, and your offspring, the serpent. So it's the, the offspring, the seed, Another way to speak about that is we think about a translation from the Hebrew text. The seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, the offspring of Eve, versus the seed and the generations that follow in the way of the serpents. This is, this is the, the battle lines that have been set up here. So we think about scope and this total war that is all-encompassing. Not only can we think about examples from history, like we started with World War I, World War II, also, uh, we can think about examples from, from other places, like literature, the arts. One of the places my mind went this week was uh, thinking about Shakespeare. I'm not a big Shakespeare guy. I don't know a ton of Shakespeare, but I, I, uh, I thought about you know, his classic work, the great romantic tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. In this story, of course, we know there's a lot of drama between these two characters, these kind of star-crossed lovers, for lack of a better term. But we see also that this, this relationship that they have, Romeo, Juliet, in the midst of all this, there's also this constant big conflict back and forth between these two families, right? Montagues and the Capulets. So for Shakespeare, in this story, as he's writing it, the scope of the conflict is all-encompassing, in that story, right? It, it affects everyone in every way. Every relationship is, is altered by this dynamic, this challenge that's between these two families, this back and forth. I think it's the same thing that we see in Genesis 3 and how that pulls out into even our experience today. Everything, every creature will be, is affected by the war that has unfolded. As we, as we see it in the scripture and then kind of pull it out into other places on even into the New Testament, we see not only you know, the people themselves, Adam and Eve, but especially their seed, their offspring are affected. Those who will come after them are affected in a serious way. Thinking about this theme in particular, it's interesting to think about. We see this, I think, a lot in scripture that we notice that spiritual war and spiritual conflict and children, offspring, seed, these ideas are often tied together in scripture. Well, one place, you know, that might sound, does that sound strange as I say it? So like, what are you talking about, Brian? Yeah. Um, 
I don't know if this will make it more clear or not. I was uh, thinking about this idea how we see spiritual conflict and the scope of it pulling in all, all things, and including offspring and children. Uh, I thought of 1 John chapter 3. It's one example of this, verse 10, where John is writing to this church that itself is in the midst of some, some turmoil and some struggle. This group of Christians seeking to be faithful to the Lord in this challenging moment. And he writes this. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God, the, you know, the, the offspring of God, the seed of God, and who are the children, the offspring of the devil, he says. Right? He goes on from there and he begins to delineate, okay, this is how you can kind of discern between who's who in this situation. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, not, you know, the seed is not the offspring of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we see this, we see that those two, those themes kind of tied together here in John's thinking. There's conflict, and also we're thinking about children, offspring, this back and forth. And I think this ties back all the way to Genesis 3, right? the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of Eve. Another place we could see this, kind of amp it up a notch just briefly, is the words of Jesus himself. See this in the gospel, especially the gospel of John. It's this moment where Jesus is kind of going back and forth with the Pharisees. It's one of these moments where you see that Jesus is is not necessarily looking to be buddy-buddy with the Pharisees because he's got some stiff words to say. John 8, verse 44, Jesus says this, To the Pharisees, bold words, he says, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Goes on from there. He talks about the father, right? Satan. He says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Talk about just... Laying it all out there. You can see how this ties in this moment in Genesis. And again, we see this idea of children, offspring being linked with conflict. Father, the devil. It's a wild thing to to reflect on. And we see how there's, again, there's this enmity even in Jesus' day. It's back and forth. So the scope here, the spiritual war, is... Total. And, and it might start small. It starts with Adam, starts with Eve, starts with the serpent, starts, starts in the garden. It's very local. It's all there. But then it, it goes global from there. It, it, gets, it gets big. It goes everywhere. The scope of the war is all-encompassing. And you might say at this point, okay, Brian, this is a bummer of a sermon. You're depressing me, and I want to fall asleep now. Anyone? Yeah. Or you just want to fall asleep in general because, you know, naps are wonderful. But, you know, the good news is this is not all there is, right? The, the war is real. The, the, the enmity is real. The struggle is real. And yet, there is hope here. There is gospel here. There is good news as well. Yes, right? There's hope. In fact, actually, you know, I had thought Josh had mentioned this in, like, his opening sermon, you know, two weeks back when we talked about, like, why are we camping out in Genesis 3 leading up to Christmas and the connection to Advent. I thought he had used this phrase, and I said it to everyone, and everyone was like, what are you talking about, Brian? So apparently I'm wrong, 
But Genesis 3.15, this is the huge reason that we're kind of reflecting on this chapter, these verses, as we're coming into Christmas. Biblical scholarship, if you really kind of dig into people who like really go in and like make studying of theology and God's word their jam, there's this really cool little label that, you, that people have historically for Genesis 3.15, uh, Genesis 3.15, and it's that this verse is actually what they call the Proto-Evangelium. Was that mentioned? Does that sound familiar at all? Proto-Evangelium? You probably would have remembered if that had been said, because it's, you know, it kind of sticks in your brain. What does it mean? Proto, first. Evangel, what does that sound like? Evangel, evangelism, like good news, right? So it's, it, Genesis 3.15 is the first good news. As scholars have studied scripture, and said, hey, like, like, we see the fall, we see this tragedy, it's heavy, it's dark, but 3.15, bam, there's some good news here. Hallelujah. Look again with me at the second part, especially of this verse. I'll read up to it uh, again. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Second part here, he, the offspring of Eve, he will bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Depending on the translation you're looking at, you know, I'm ESV, but if you're looking at an NIV, it might say something like, he will crush your head. Does anyone have an NIV? The NIV uses two different words, right? He will crush your head and you shall, what? Strike his heel. You know, normally we're all about the ESV, but I kind of like that, that, that kind of vibrant picture that we get with those, those words from the NIV, crush and strike. I think it makes sense to go bruise, bruise in the ESV because it's the same Hebrew word that's being translated. But like there's something about just the, the vitality of those other words that really I feel like brings home the points that the, the scriptures are making here in 315. What is the point? Like what are we saying here? What do we see? I think in this, in this little verse, there's a lot packed in. But if I were going to try and just boil it down to really what we're seeing, I think it's this. It's that in the end, the final promised end result of all of this spiritual war, the end result of this enmity, the conflict, all the things that we see going on here is, will be the ultimate defeat of the serpent. His defeat, his bruising, his crushing. In the end, the serpent does not, will not win. Now, we might notice here that the fighting is real, right? There is some fierceness here. There is some back and forth. You know, there is victory, I think, that is being hinted at here, big picture, in a beautiful way. But at the same time, it's, it's not costless victory. It's not cheap, easy victory. There's a cost to the victory, right? You see a heel strike and a head shot going on here. But if we think about that, there's a huge difference between that heel injury and that head injury, right? I mean, if you had to choose one, which one would you take? Yeah, I mean, you, you, get, a, you get a heel injury, especially, especially if it's your Achilles. Dang. I mean, your season might be over. Say goodbye to the playoffs. That, that's, that's a huge bummer. It hurts. But if your, your other option is that head strike, that head shot, 
I mean, headshot, head strike, game over, right? You're done. And that's what we're seeing here. Really, what we see, Genesis 3.15, this proto-evangelium, the first good news is that from day one of the fall, day one of the curse, already the fate of the serpent is sealed. It's, it's, it's kind of foggy here. It's only hinted at. But this is what is being alluded to in this text. It's where we're heading. Although at this point, you know, if we were, you know, Old Testament uh, Hebrew readers of the text, we would have no idea, like, how this is going to play out. We'd have no idea who the he is here, who is supposed to be the, the one who's bruising, the one who's crushing. It would all be deeply mysterious. But we'd, we'd, we'd catch the hint. There's something good happening. There's, there's a conflict, and the serpent, it's not going to go well for him, right? By the time we get to the New Testament... By the time we get to our vantage point today, we do know who the he is. Right? We, we do know who the bruiser, the crusher is. It's absolutely clear once we get to the New Testament and beyond that Jesus is that one. Jesus, as we see all these genealogies in Scripture, Jesus who is the son of Adam, the son of Mary, the son of God, he is the one who comes ultimately and crushes that serpent. The promised Messiah. Uh, I have a a kid's book that I read with my kids, uh, and that's, that's what they call Jesus, right? They call him the snake crusher. It's not a bad title for our Savior. This, I think, is the promised end result of what we see hinted at here in Genesis 3.15. It's where the story is heading. Zooming out, pulling back for just a moment, we see these, we see these realities, we see the scope, we see the end results. Thinking again about spiritual war, big picture. I love the way Scripture informs Scripture. I love the way scripture uh, ties in and, you know, places, you know, you see something referenced in one place and you can see, oh man, this is tied back to here and it's tied up to there. And like, it's this beautiful, incredible web that the Holy Spirit has woven together in God's word. And as we think about this, this theme of spiritual war and conflict, one of the places that I, we just can't ignore as I look to kind of be wrapping us up here is Revelation chapter 12, verses one through six. Because in this moment, as we come towards the end of the story, it's this moment where we're kind of looking back and pulling from the whole canon of Scripture. And this, as we read it, is actually the way I see it, the way I read it. Someone might, you know, lots of debate about Revelation and how to interpret it. So someone might come up to me and be like, Brian, you're totally wrong about this. But to me, what we see in Revelation 12 is a retelling of the nativity from the, the supernatural perspective, right? From the heavenly viewpoint, this... This is what, you know, happens in the gospel when Jesus is born. And we see the, the themes of Genesis 3 tied in here as well. I want to read this passage for us, if, you're, if you can stay with me. You want to hear these verses? Genesis, uh, Revelation 12, 1 through 6? Okay, with me. We'll read it here. God's word says, uh, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant. And was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. It's the serpent come full circle, right? 
the great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child wasn't eaten by the dragon, right? Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Can you see it? This is like this spiritual perspective on, you know, the baby in the manger. Isn't that cool? Is that, is, I mean, have you guys seen, have made, tied that together before? Have you seen that connection? Some yes, some no. It's, it's incredible, right? This is, and again, this is the behind the veil, the veil you know, the shepherds and the, you know, all that stuff. This is what's going on behind the scenes. This is Christmas. This is Advent, right? We're, we're waiting for the one who will come to rule the nations with a rod of iron in truth, truth and grace. So friends, the war is on. Genesis 3 and beyond, even for us today, the war is on. We know that even though Satan is a defeated foe, ultimately, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, his shed, his shed blood, we know that he, he doesn't like fully know it yet, or he's in denial about himself being defeated by the cross, because he's still raging. First Peter talks about he, how he is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Right, so he's still doing things. And it's, it's why we need to take a note out of the page of God's word and out of what we see in Genesis 3 and speak God's word when we're tempted, when we're on the verge of being deceived ourselves by this liar. Remind him of God's truth. Remind him of who he is in the big story that the scripture is telling us is true. That he is done. Tying us all the way back around where we started, only the dead have seen the end of war. Santayana wasn't, wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a believer. But if this little insight has any truth to it, only the dead have seen the end of war, that would include Jesus. Right? Jesus is the one who has died, and yet he lives again. He's seen the full picture, right? He's seen the end of war. He is the, he's the one who brings, ultimately, the end of all war and conflict. He's the one who gives us life from the dead as well. So we pray, as we sang earlier, come thou long-expected Jesus. Bring that end of the story. We want it. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. The scope of the war is total. The end is clear. Satan will be defeated. Jesus will be victorious. Let's pray. Father, you are before all things. God, we are grateful that you minister to our hearts, Lord, that you reveal your story to us. You reveal to us things that are behind the veil that we would have no other way of knowing or conceiving God, you bring us from darkness and blindness and death to life and light and truth. God, thank you that you use all kinds of things in our life, all all of these means of grace, your word, and also what we're about to do together, this table, to minister to our hearts. Thank you, Jesus.